Lord, we know that you're living. We know that you're active. We know that you're alive. And we know that you're the God who loves to speak to people. We know that you're the God who loves to take the, the Bible that is written and impress it upon our hearts and minds. And so, Lord, our prayer this morning is that as we come to look at this part of Philippians, that you would speak to us and that we would leave here having heard your voice. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we all know that it's much better to solve a problem when it's really, really small than to wait until it becomes a much bigger, insolvable problem, don't we? So, I mean, you get a little tiny chip on your windscreen. You know, you're driving along the motorway, you hear a little crack on the windscreen, and you see that little chip. What you know is that you need to get that fixed as soon as possible. Before, in a couple of days' time, it transforms into a shattered windscreen, right? You also know that if, you know, you're, you're, you're having a shower or a bath and you notice a small lump on your body, you know that it's far better to go to the doctor immediately while that lump is still small than to wait to six months down the line when the lump is worryingly large and potentially fatal. We know this, don't we? It's much better to address a problem when it's small than before it grows to become an awful, potentially fatal problem. And the book of Philippians, whenever Paul writes it, whenever he writes this little letter to the church in a place called Philippi, one of the things that he's writing to do is to address a problem in the church that's very, very small when he's writing, but if left unaddressed, could potentially shatter the whole church. And what is that problem? What is the little problem that he's writing to address? It's disunity. It's disharmony. It's division. Paul is writing to the church in Philippi because within it there is a little small problem of division. If you read the whole book of Philippians, whenever you get to chapter 4, in fact, what Paul does, and I would never do this as a minister, but he singles out two ladies in the church. And he says to them in, in chapter 4, verse 2, he says, I played with Yodi and Syndicate. It's like he's pointing, tell them to get on in the Lord. You see, in this church, there were, there were two women and they were at odds with each other. They were in a bit of a spat with each other. And you know what happens when that happens, don't you? What happens in a church family when two people are at war is that people start to take sides. And Paul knew that if he didn't deal with this problem of division, this small problem, then he knew that the whole church could potentially become infected with division and maybe even just completely shatter into pieces. Here's a true story. There was a church in Dallas, Texas a number of years ago, and they were a church family at war. They, they sat on other sides of the building. They sort of, you can imagine, sort of glaring across at each other and, and anger at each other. They, they hated each other. There'd been a big fallout in the church family. And the fallout was so bad that what they wanted to do was get the other side out. And so they went to court with each other and they put through legal proceedings. And what they wanted to do is they wanted to get one side of the argument to leave so they could have the church building. And the judge in the case said, listen, this isn't for me to decide. You, you need to decide this as a church. And so what did they do? They, they put an investigation. They, they carried out an investigation into this big fight, into this big rivalry, to try to find out what the source was, to try to find out what the, the kind of main problem was. And this is not a joke. That rivalry started 
whenever at a church family dinner, I'm worried about the one we're planning now for December, but at a church family dinner, the person serving the food had given one man a smaller piece of ham than the child beside him. And that is funny, but it's tragic, isn't it? This little insignificant thing had started this feud within the church and people took sides and it ended up being a complete mess. Let me tell you another true story. This one is not a joke as well. There was a church family and a number of men in the congregation were taking offense at the hairstyles of the choir members. They thought that their hairstyles were inappropriate for church. And so these men, well, they grumbled to themselves. And then they grumbled to some other people in the church family. And the whole thing snowballed to the point where there was an investigation within the church to find out if the hairstyles were okay. And on the Sunday morning, the the minister or the, the man who was in charge of the investigation, he was from another congregation, he stood up and he gave the declaration, the hairstyles are fine. And at that moment, the four men got up and about a quarter of the congregation got up and they left the church building never to return again. That was in this church. That was here in 1935 in Ravenhill Presbyterian Church. Can you see why just a small, tiny bit of division can lead to a big bit of division that can lead to a church being absolutely destroyed. We don't need to look far. It's happened here over hairstyles. A member of the church at that time, he, he, he wrote about it, a man called Sidney Murray. And this is what he wrote, and I think it is so insightful. He wrote this. He said, From time to time, there developed periods of disharmony, which weakened the witness of the church and its influence on the community. It was perhaps mainly due to this factor that early progress was not maintained. Now, I don't know if Sidney Murray recognized it, but what he said is absolutely true. Division and disunity and disharmony within a church, it affects our witness. You see, if we're bickering with one another, you see, if we're at odds with one another, you see, if we're fighting with one another, you see, if we're falling out with one another, people from the outside, they look in. And do you know what they say? They say, hey, those people, they're meant to have been forgiven by God. But yet they can't forgive each other. Those people, they're they're meant to be the people who've been accepted by God despite their flaws. And yet they don't accept one another. They're the people who are meant to be reconciled to God and yet they can't be reconciled to one another. They're the people who claim that they daily need God's grace every day of life. And yet they won't be gracious to one another. You see, disunity and disharmony and division, it starts off very, very small like a chip on a windscreen. But if left to fester, it shatters complete churches. And Paul knows this. You see, the Apostle Paul, he's seen division in other churches. He, he knows this is a threat He knows that the church, Philippi, you know, they're being oppressed by those outside. There's pressure from outside. But the thing that could destroy them is this little small bit of division that's within them. 
And so he writes to them. And in Philippians chapter 2, he, he tells them a number of things that they need to do to try to guard against division. He writes to them and he says, here are some things that I just plead with you to do to think about. Because I don't want you to be divided. I don't want your lovely church family to be destroyed. And this morning I want to highlight four things he says that the church are to do. And, and this morning, if you're a member of this church family, if you consider this your church, if you consider this your home, if you consider the people around you brothers and sisters in Christ, then these four things are essential for you to understand with your mind and to work hard to put into practice. And maybe you're here this morning and, and you don't go to a church, but you know what disunity and division is like in your home or in your family or in your workplace. Then what I want to say to you is that these four things will also be helpful for you too if you want to work to make that a place where division and disharmony are less of an issue. So what does Paul say? Well, he says that they're to do at least four things. And the first thing is this. They are to remember what unites them. They're meant to remember as a church family what it is that's brought them together. The church in Philippi, they were a real mixed bag of people. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, you heard some of the people in the church. So you had a lady called Lydia. And well, she was quite posh. She, she had a bit of money. She was a, a, an affluent lady. She sold purple cloth. She sold royal cloth. She was an affluent lady. She was kind of a posh lady. And then you had this girl who was a slave and had been freed from slavery. And she was kind of a slave girl. Kind of the other end, I guess, of, of the social ladder. A completely different lifestyle than Lydia had. She'd had a very hard life, a very difficult life. She brought a lot of baggage with her when she came to church. And then there was the centurion, a Roman soldier who was used to having power. But yet, if you remember from the, the, a few weeks ago, he was at the point of suicide. A man with power, but a man who inside felt very desperate. The church in Philippi was a real mixed bag of people. There would have been people from different racial backgrounds, different countries. There would have been people with different jobs. There would have been different political positions, different social positions. They were a real mixed bag of people. A bit like us. And you see, within that mixed bag of people, there would have been people with difficult personalities. You would have had people who got angry easily. You would have had people who were just really annoying. You would have had people who, who would have been offended easily. You would have had people who were very good at offending people easily. A real mixed bag of people. And what happens whenever you put a mixed bag of people together? <laughs> Disunity, doesn't it? People can fall out easily. People can dislike each other easily. Problems can occur easily. And so what Paul does, he says, listen, little church in Philippi, I know you're all different from each other. I know you maybe rub each other up the wrong way sometimes. I know you're imperfect people. But listen, you need to be united. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember the one thing that unites you. Remember that one thing that unites you. What's that one thing? It's faith in Jesus Christ. Have a look with me at the passage, chapter 2, verse 1. Paul says, If you've any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship from the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. 
Do you see verse 2? See what he's doing? He said, okay, folks, I want you to be united with each other. But then if you look at verse 1, he reminds them of what it is that unites them. He says, since you have encouragement from being united with Christ. Little church in Philippi, the thing that unites you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And Ravenhill Presbyterian Church, the thing that unites you is the Lord Jesus Christ. And the reason I'm saying that is because I want you not to expect other things to unite you to each other. You see, the church, in the church, you could be someone with a completely different political position than another person, and that's okay because it's Christ that unites us. In the church, you could be someone from a completely different nationality with very strange customs compared to the customs in the UK, but that's okay because what unites us is the Lord Jesus Christ. You could have a very different personality from someone else in the church family, a personality that that kind of could naturally clash. But that's okay because what unites you is the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you have a different social background. Maybe you come with different problems in your life. Maybe you come with just a completely different view on things than everybody else. That's okay. Because the thing that unites us as members of this church family are not those things. It's our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And this morning, I just want to encourage you, Ravenhill Presbyterian, my my church family here, you don't need to agree on everything. You don't need to see eye to eye on everything. But what you must do is remember that the thing that unites you is that you belong to the Lord Jesus and that you're one of God's people. Remember, that is the thing that unites you. Okay, the second thing then, what else does Paul say? He says, first of all, remember what unites you. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that he says is this. He says, you see in how you treat each other. Now, this is where it gets a bit, this is where it gets a bit challenging because the next thing is Paul is actually going to ask us to treat each other in a certain way. And how Paul says we're to treat each other, it's pretty challenging. So let me tell you the first thing he says. The first thing he says is, I want you to count each other as being more significant than yourselves. I want you to count each other as being more significant than yourselves. As humans, we're good at lots of things, aren't we? We're good at kind of building spaceships to go to to Mars. We're good at, you know, um, plumbing the depths of the sea to find out what's there. We're, We're really good at lots of things. We're very talented at lots of things. And one of the things I think, though, that we're most talented at, one of the things that I think we're really, really, really good at, is feeling superior to others, aren't we? We're really good at finding a way to make ourselves feel better than other people. So maybe we're rich, and because we're rich, well, we feel superior than all those people who don't have billions in the bank. Or maybe we're bright, And so we feel superior to those who maybe intellectually aren't as bright as us. Maybe we're successful in the world's eyes, and so we we feel superior to those who are not successful. Maybe we're just brilliant moms or brilliant dads or or brilliant husbands or brilliant wives, and we feel superior to those, well, who are just not, let's put it, as good as us. 
it's so easy to feel superior to others. And whenever we feel superior, whenever we feel better, do you know what happens? We treat others worse. We treat people badly. We put others down. We make them feel like less of a person. And in the church in Philippi, there would have been people who felt superior. If you were a Roman citizen at this time, then you had the best citizenship in the world. And anyone who wasn't a Roman citizen, would you'd feel better than them. If you were a Jew at the time, you'd feel better than the pagans. If only come to Christ, you knew Christ was coming because you had the Old Testament. But these pagans, well, they know nothing compared to you. If you were free, if you weren't a slave, you'd feel better or superior than the slaves. You see, in society at this time, this was the way the world worked. You were superior, you felt superior, you looked down on others, and you didn't treat people equally. But you see what Paul says? He says there's absolutely no place for that in the church. He says there's, there's no room for that in the church family. No room for looking down your nose at someone. Or no room for looking up your nose, down at someone saying, well, they're stuck up, they're posh, I don't like them. He says that there's just no room for that. Look at verse 3. You see it very clearly. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. But look at this. In humility, consider others better than yourself. Consider others better than yourself. Now, what does that not mean? It doesn't mean if you're like the best footballer in the world and you're a 20-year-old guy and there's a 90-year-old lady in church. It doesn't mean that you go, okay, no, you're a better footballer than me. That's not what it means, okay? But what it does mean is that you, you, you elevate them to a higher position than yourself. You, you think of them as being a better person than yourself. You, you give them the benefit of the doubt. You treat them as an equal. You treat them as a peer. You, you don't look down on them. You don't put them down. But you treat them well. You show them respect. You show them courtesy. You listen to them. You, you see them as someone worthy of your help, worthy of your support, worthy of your time. Folks, there's no place in the church for looking down on anybody. No place at all for it. There's no room for cliques. There's no room for put-downs. There's no place for superiority. That's the second thing Paul says. And you can see, can't you, why if that continues in the church, it's going to split. You can see it, can't you? You can see how division can come from that. He says there's no place for it. Let's move on to the third thing. Uh, and these last two will do a little bit quicker. So the, the, the third thing he says is this. Look out for each other's interests. You see that in verse 4. Do you see it there? Each of you should look out not only for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. And what Paul is saying there, he said, listen, you see when you come to church, don't make it all about you. Whenever you come to church, don't be selfish when you get there. Don't just think about your needs and what you want and why you've come and what you've come to get. Whenever you get to church, whenever you gather with God's people, think about the needs and the interests of others around you. As a minister, and not necessarily here, but in other places, you, you hear all sorts of, of stuff in the church. I got nothing out of that. That's a real favorite of some people. I got nothing out of that today. That sermon was really boring. <laughs> I know what some of you might say that this morning, so uh, I'll forgive you. 
you know, I didn't like the singing. Do you notice the, the word that's used in all of those? I, 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 I didn't like, I didn't get. I found that dull. It's interesting, isn't it? It's so easy to come into church and to make it all about us. We've come to get, we've come to receive, we've come to, to hear, you know, it's, it's all about us. But Paul says, don't just look out for your own interests. Look out for the interests of others. And what he's saying is, whenever you come to church, look at the people around you and help them and talk to them and encourage them. He said, whenever you come to church, don't make it about what you get and why you're there, but make it about going there to to care for others and support each other and, and to care for each other. What a mindset we need to have changed in our minds, don't we? Imagine next Sunday we came to church and instead of coming in going, I hope the sermon's good, I hope I like the music, I hope the people, you know, don't get too, I don't know, whatever, whatever your complaint is. Instead of doing that, imagine you came in and you said, I wonder who I can help today. I wonder who I can pray for. I wonder who I can speak to. I wonder who I can encourage. Can you imagine the, the unity that would come? Can you imagine the deep sense of friendship that would be developed? Can you imagine that? Imagine going home from church next week and you're sitting around lunch and say, well, how'd you find church today? And instead of saying, I didn't like the sermon, you say, I had a great day at church. I was able to pray for somebody. I was able to speak to that lonely person. I had a great morning. I was able to speak to them and encourage them. We could have brilliant weeks in church every week if that was our mindset. Folks, look out not only for your own interests within this church family, but, but look out for the interests of others. Let's move to our final point. And the, the final point is this. Paul says, within the church family, consider yourselves as servants. Look at, for, look at uh, verse 5. He says, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. So he says, within the church family, your attitude to each other should be the same as Jesus. What a big challenge that is. But then he gives the example, who being in very nature God, did not count equality with God, something to be grasped, something to be used for his own advantage, but made himself nothing taking the very nature of a servant. The Lord Jesus, before he went to the cross, do you remember what he did? The, the, the man who is God, the one who came down from heaven, the one who drove out demons and, and healed sicknesses, the, the son of God, do you remember what he did? He took off his outer garment and he kneeled down at the dirty, stinking feet of the disciples. And he got a basin and he washed them took the form of a servant and he served his disciples. What humility. He didn't come to be served. He didn't ask people to serve him. He came to serve. And folks, that's what I want to encourage us to do because that's what Paul's encouraging us to do within this church family, to see ourselves as those who've been called to serve one another, to really care for one another, to love one another, not coming in saying, how can everybody serve me today? But coming in and saying, how, how might I serve another person? Folks, can you see 
why this would be helpful for unity. I hope you do. The four things, what are we to do? Remember what unites us. Count each other more significant. Look out for each other's interests. Consider ourselves as servants. And if we do this, it's really going to help with church unity. But to finish, I just want to say this. If we do this, it won't just lead to unity. Do you know what it will lead to? It will lead to joy. It will lead to joy. Have you noticed how being selfish and being all for yourself and wanting everyone to serve you and having the whole world revolved around you, have you noticed how miserable it makes you? Because nothing's ever good enough. We don't get everything we want. And, and, and actually, the, 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 the pursuit of living for ourselves, it leads to misery. But Paul here, he gives us a better way. And what's his way? You see the word joy, Jesus, other yourself. You see the self last. He says, basically, as you put others and the Lord Jesus above yourself, as you live for the good of others and as you live for the glory of Jesus Christ, you know what you're going to find? Real joy. Real joy. Folks, I want to encourage you to do these things, not just so that we're united as a church family but so that you know the joy, the deep joy, the real joy that comes from dying to yourself and living for the good of Christ and for the good of others.